because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm Alex Epstein. Uh, I've been reading a couple of really good articles lately, and I noticed that a few of them had the same author. As an author I had been hearing about, he has this book called The End of Fossil Fuel Insanity, uh, which is kind of a provocative title. I wasn't even sure exactly what it meant. Is it somebody who's pro-fossil fuels or against fossil fuels? I later learned he's at least much more pro-fossil fuels than the average energy commentator. Uh, but I was really impressed by some articles I read by this guy on China and on California, both issues that are dear to my heart because they relate to the security of the US and also the state in which I live that's unfortunately declining in many ways. So I thought I would bring him on the show and learn more about him as well as learn more about those specific issues. So his name is Terry Edom. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. He'll correct me if I'm not. Uh, he's based in Canada, I believe, and I'm excited to have him on. So Terry, welcome to Power Hour. Hi, Alex. Nice to meet you and very happy to be here. So did I get the name right? You did. Yeah. Yeah. And where Nailed are you it. based? I'm in Calgary in the heart of the oil patch. So uh, yeah, public enemy number one for a lot of people, but hey, we got to provide the fuel to keep everybody going. So, Yeah. And one of your, your outlets is publicenergy1.com yeah. uh, um, and BOE report, which we'll talk about toward the end. Uh, but so one thing that struck me reading your articles is they, they combine, a, in my view, like a good understanding of how the energy industry works, as well as understanding technology and economics. And usually when I read anything that is about energy, I find like vast errors in, in one of those three things. Yeah, oh, they don't yeah. understand the technology, Everywhere. they don't understand yeah. the economics, they don't, or, or they just screw around with numbers or like picked up some number. And I didn't find any uh, mistakes, which is kind of a condescending thing for me to say, but hopefully you take that as a compliment. <laughs> sure, yeah, that, sure. That there were no, that it was like, and so oh, I'm, I'm interested with your background, like how did you get this kind of um, strength in these different dimensions of this issue, which is very unusual? Oh, well, thank you. Um, so I've been around for, uh, well, closing on 30 years in the oil patch and it's been my whole career. I started off with one of the big companies recruited out of university and then I worked for uh, just over time, I, I've just taken on a, a number of different challenges. I guess I'm a bit restless mentally. And, and so I've worked in the uh, the upstream production side. I've worked in the system impl implementation side, a little bit of minor IT. I worked in, um, I worked for a trading company, one of the majors, the super majors uh, trading groups, trading crude oil. Um, I wasn't a trader, but I was responsible for the financial uh, uh, verification of trades. I worked as a, in a, for a pipeline company as a communications director for six years. And then I've been a, a, a CFO for uh, small companies, which is what I do today. So uh, I've kind of been all over the map. And I, I think just a curiosity, and, and I don't have any um, uh, preconceived notions about what energy should be. I think energy should be what the market dictates. And uh, as, you, as you point out a lot, energy uh, or petroleum hydrocarbons are, are the best source. They're the most energy dense. We have a system that's been set up over a century that keeps seven and a half billion people alive. And to change that is just a, a task beyond anyone's comprehension, anyone that I've encountered. I'm not against anything. I just don't see anything that's going to that's gonna make it happen quickly. Yeah. So that leads to my next question, which is what you think of this 
energy transition. And let me, let me divide it up into a couple of things. So one is, which we don't need to get too much into because everyone knows my views on this, is just like the, the idea of like the climate apocalypse that, okay, like we need to do this, otherwise the world's gonna end. So there's that element. But then even independent of that, there's this idea that there's this renewable energy transition that is sort of inevitable. And it, there's a bit of a conflict because it's inevitable, but then we need the government to totally control it and mandate it. So there's that kind of tension. But I think the more, the, the more sort of friendly version of that that we're sold is like, there's just this amazing revolution and maybe it needs a little push. But yes, today's energy system that, as you say, supports seven and a half billion people, like that can rapidly be replaced by a new system that uh, is overwhelmingly based on solar and wind and batteries. So when, like, how do you come at that issue and, and how, how does that relate to your experience? Well, over, over time, I've come to the conclusion that it's just going to be, as I mentioned, far harder than anyone thinks to, to adapt uh, to a completely new system, especially renewables. I think where we've gotten so far off track here is that the fear that's been generated by, by climate activists, and I, I, I make a very firm distinction between environmentalists and climate activists. They may, they're, they're not the same thing. There, there are people that care about the environment. I work with geologists and everyone, and no one cares more about the environment than a geologist, in my opinion, because they understand it from the ground up or, and way below the ground, actually. And, and, and they're, they're passionate people of all stripes. And so there's climate activists and there's environmentalists. So I think that, I think that, and, and I think some people maybe have done it with the best of intentions. They are truly scared of a, a climate apocalypse. And so they've spent a lot of time and a lot of effort uh, uh, convincing people that, uh, and fear sells too. So they, they, it's easy to uh, scare people. And it's also easy to go walk up to the average citizen. Most people don't care about energy at all. They don't, they don't, they care about the price of gasoline. They don't think about whether their building is heated or air conditioned. It's, we just take it for granted because it's always there. So I think if you walk up to the average citizen and you say, where would you prefer to get your energy from the wind and the sun with, with no uh, issues or from dirty old hydrocarbons? Well, they, they're, they're, of course, they're going to go for, for the, the clean option. Who wouldn't if, if that's how it's presented to you? And that is how it's presented to them. But everywhere that's trying it is uh, there's a, a certain penetration of renewables that works just fine. But once you get beyond that, the, the system challenges just multiply. The complexity is off the charts. The, the uh, regulatory framework that's developing all over the world just makes it harder to build anything. And I think that's one of the biggest things that people don't understand is how hard it is to build anything these days. So, so let's 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 apply that to California. I just qualified, like at least my own views. So and my own views, I mean, I think there are definite like certain things that get worse, much worse with scale as you try more penetration, more penetration. Uh, but I mean, just about every example I know of has gotten worse at every scale. That is, it doesn't collapse in terms of reliability, but it adds cost. So if you, I'm, I'm curious on your view on this, but like if you look at California, my take on it in other places is that what you have is they want to add what you know I call disparagingly these unreliables like solar and wind, and they want to have a certain percentage of those, and you can do that with reliability if you keep all of your reliable power plants up and you just add unreliable power plants and new infrastructure, but then that ends up costing a bunch of money. And then people get annoyed that it's costing more money and they don't want people to associate cost increases with these unreliables, even though they should. So then they have to cut back spending in different places. So it could be like PG&E in California, not doing as much maintenance uh, as they're supposed to, or it could be, you know, just not buying 
uh, new plants that are needed in a growing place like Texas or in California, we're clearly shutting down plants. You know, we're shutting down reliable nuclear, we're shutting down reliable natural gas. So, but my take is it, it raises the prices wherever it's used, but then once you get to a certain point, then it really starts causing issues, particularly because that often involves shutting down the reliable plants. What's your take on that? I, I agree completely on that. The, the, the cost goes up and the reliability goes down and, and people just aren't used to that. We see that now when there's power outages, like it's, it's a very big deal. We're, we're just not, we, the system that's built up over that century has been very reliable. And, and to start tinkering with it by pulling away some of the support pillars, nuclear or oil and gas, it, it's just very dangerous thing to do in a short time frame as California is finding out. There, there's uh, the article, uh, one of the ones that you're referring to, I, I, I chronicled some decisions made by the California Public Utilities Commission about- Yeah, I want uh, you to go into that. I'd love to just get sort of your take on sure. California because I thought you had some really great details there, oh. some of which I wasn't familiar with. Okay, well, and, and there's two, two aspects to California which are really interesting. One is uh, uh, first, just slightly off topic, but uh, your governor vetoed a high-speed rail link a couple of years ago between San Francisco and Los Angeles when the estimated price tag hit $77 billion. And that, that to me is just symptomatic of what happens when you want to do a large scale infrastructure project. The, the, the notion of putting up high speed rail all over the US and replacing even a fraction of rail traffic is just laughable for anyone that wants to try and do that. Just, just try it and see. Just the regulatory process is a decade or more. For, and then the, the nimbyism and, and everything else is just it's, it's just not going to happen. Um, but so how much of it is that? And we'll get back to California, but that is a really important issue as well, because we're, we're obsessed with, infra, we have this contradiction, which I've discussed on Twitter lately, where our president says, oh, all I care about is infrastructure. And then he is like, oh, I need $2.3 trillion. Most of it has nothing to do with infrastructure. But then the whole infrastructure thing is you can't build anything here. It takes yeah, forever. Right. So yep. what, I mean, what's, what's your view on, um, oh. Yeah, well, sorry, I can. I'll, okay, I'll answer your. You had a question about the California situation too. So, the um, the 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 queso, the uh, utility operator that's responsible for maintaining the grid, has said like California is really going to be short of electricity. And the Public Utilities Commission, which looks to me like to be stacked with political appointees, a couple of whom are climate activists um, who are fighting for environmental justice, according to their bios, anyways. They um, they oversee these decisions, and so they 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 held hearings and they get submissions from from people that are actually involved in in providing electricity. The some of the utilities and and a whole um, plethora of uh, climate activist groups, the Sierra Club and the likes of them, and, and they give them all equal weighting. And if the Sierra Club says says you can never do this, and the utility says we need new power, then they just say, well, we have two equal viewpoints here. And because we're in favor of the environment, we're going to go with the Sierra Club. And so they're they're shutting down, like you said, perfectly good facilities uh, all over and, and including the nuclear one, which just boggles my mind how people can be that against clean nuclear power. And the 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 biggest uh, reason that things get sidetracked, I think, in the public's mind is you'll they'll read endless articles about a new solar installation, for example, or new wind. And they talk about how many gigawatts of capacity it is. But but that's not a real number. That's in peak conditions, and it's not something you can count on. So so as the more sol solar you build, the bigger problem you're going to have. And and uh, Queso, the system operator said in 2017, they said we have too much solar power now. That was four years ago. 
And, and the problem is just getting worse because you have a glut at the wrong time of day and you can't do anything with it. So in California, a lot of people don't know this too, but power prices have gone negative uh, in the middle of the day when there's too much power. So the reliable energy gets sidelined or charged a, a bill for the power they produce. And then as soon as the sun quits shining, it goes down. Then the instant demand comes back for, for those utilities to, uh, to start producing power. And, and it's like you say, the capital just flees. You can't make a good return on that. And California's solution has been, well, we'll just import it from other states. Um, but but that if, if, if you think that through logically, that doesn't work either because every other uh, jurisdiction is doing the same thing. They're, they're, they're leaning more on renewables and their demand is going to be highest when California's. And, and there's when the heat wave comes, heat waves are not new. They've been around forever. They, they've struck before and they will strike again. And they don't just hit California at the same time. They can hit half of the United States or, or half of the continent. So and they can last for a week. And, and that's where you get to the batteries issue. Then advocates say, well, all we need is solar and batteries, but batteries are an impossibility. They, they just, they will function well. They have a very, very good function as what's called peaking. When, if you charge up a battery and then when the power consumption spikes during the day, as it always does, they can feed power into the system. But as far as any kind of reliable baseload for, for multiple days, it, it just can't happen. Because even if you had enough batteries, let's say you had enough batteries and you've done some calculations on, what it would take to provide enough batteries is just an absurd number. And if even if you had those and you relied on them for a couple of days, how would they get recharged? So th th like you, you could have nothing but batteries in the United States. And if they all get drained and uh, you, you can't recharge them in time for the next cycle uh, under extreme weather conditions, and that's when they're needed most under extreme weather conditions. And batteries function the worst when the weather is the worst, when they're needed most. Yeah, there's a lot there. One thing to point out about the the batteries thing, and, and a lot of these things is these are not real ideas in the sense of like a real idea is something that somebody's willing to invest in on a competitive market and actually make work work. These are just like totally crackpot ideas that anyone thinking through them can like come up with a, ref, a refutation of. But unfortunately, it's, I mean, it, it, it's a lot like, I mean, it has a lot of the communist element to it where there's this idea <laughs> of the, the government is gonna, some smart person of the government is gonna figure out what we should all do. And then it makes the plan and it gives us orders. And so we've, we've just gotten accustomed to this setup where yeah, a few people are gonna tell us like what the plan is. And then it's on us to like refute all the details. And if they're not satisfied with our refutation then they're just gonna go ahead and do it. Versus like, imagine what you would have to establish to show that you could actually do a solar and wind based grid in any place in the world, solar, wind, and batteries. Like nobody is even close to that. And yet this is something that is, it's considered okay to mandate it on the entire country. This totally crackpot idea that nobody has ever done. That's right. And the the um, impetus or the, the wind in the sails for these people is that all of the government money that's being thrown at it. And so they, they, they start these businesses and they say, hey, I've got a profitable wind business or whatever, but that's because the government is shoveling so much money at it. They subsidize the construction and then the purchase of the power and, and and they're not responsible for when it's not producing and they're also not responsible for the liability it seems when they're when they need to be decommissioned so that which is a problem that's shared with the oil and gas industry so there's uh, it, it it's it's a um in in my mind the energy transition should have happened and it will happen naturally i don't think it's going to happen through this mechanism because it's too manic and it's not thought out but at, at a certain point when cheap 
oil and gas is used up, which is that's a, a function of what's happening. I mean, the, the, in the world, the, the U.S. had a kind of a blip from a global perspective with shale development. But in, in the longer term, that's like a decade or two decade thing, that big blip. That's not enough to um, really change the world uh, over the longer term. Like the, the world consumes 100 million barrels a day and shale production is like 10 or 12 million barrels a day. It's, it's big, no doubt about it. But, it, but over time, the, the world still needs 90 million barrels a day. So, so uh, over time, cheap reserves are being used up. And now any exploration, such as it is, happens in the very deep offshore remote locations. So, so naturally, the price of oil should rise as cheap reserves are used up over multi-decades. And, and then you will see these technologies develop at the appropriate pace. They will start filling in where, where oil is no longer economic you will see things that fill in the gaps as it should. And that's how it should happen in, in a market-based solution. That's how I expected it to happen. Five years ago, I, I was arguing on my website that we needed more wind energy um, because, because you could see a time when, when economic oil reserves were going to be used up. But now it's just gone crazy. It, it's just, yeah, the, the fear has taken over and, and we've the common sense has left the building. So. Well, so there's this question of, you know, what's what's going to be like, how much oil is going to be cost effective to produce? And I think those things are very hard to predict. Um, but I think what's clear is that, you know, we'd want a lot more energy in the world. And so there's a lot of reasons to want uh, alternatives as at least supplements to today. And then, you know, lo long, long term, you could think of as substitutes. But there's just this huge force against that, which, you know, you call them climate activists. Like I call the modern movement, like the anti-impact movement or the anti-human impact movement, just this idea mm -hmm. that it's bad for us to impact anything. And like, mm -hmm. look at what that's doing. I mean, even to solar and wind, now they're mostly there because they're mandated, but in terms of just building infrastructure, you know, siting things, um, putting up transmission lines, like even, it's even diff very difficult for them to do things. Of course, with the so nuclear, nuclear plants, like we have, uh, those are virtually criminalized in my view. And so you think right. about, um, you know, you think about what would be rational either supplements or substitutes and how they would develop like things like greater electrification of things, which is, is a natural thing to want uh, because oil is so unique in its energy density. So mm -hmm. you want to improve, you'd want to not use it ultimately where you don't strictly need that super right. high energy density, or you might do nuclear things, but like all this progress in alternatives is like severely constrained by this anti-impact movement that claims to want uh, alternatives. Well, and, and, and uh, Warren Buffett is so often as the case provides a wise example. So Berkshire Hash Hathaway Energy, sorry, BHE, I'll call it, it's simpler. Um, they, they, they had an update in their most recent annual report about how they're upgrading their grid to handle renewables. Now, this is just to handle more renewables. This isn't like a full on all going all renewable. This is handling more renewables. They started upgrading their system in 2004 and they estimated it'll be completed in 2030. So it's 26 years for one of the sharpest business minds in the, on the planet to, to with, with the deepest pockets on the planet to, to upgrade uh, their system, which is only a portion of the United States, to handle what, renewables. What portion of the U.S. is this? It's in the mid. It's in the western states. Uh, this it's about a five block, uh, five state block uh, gotcha. on the west coast, California and north, and then inland a bit. Uh, um, listeners can go to to Berkshire Hathaway Energy's website and see a, a map of their their system. 
So it, it's it's a massive undertaking for for razor sharp business minds that that started off with a game plan, um, yeah, 15 years ago or more. So, so and this has been going on for a long time. The a lot of a lot of um, companies built their first wind farms in the in the early in the turn of the century, 2002, 2004. So people have been working at this for a long time, and it's just a a, a, um, a mountain that's bigger than anybody thought. And then it gets even more so when you talk about China and India. What we're, we're decapitating ourselves here or cutting our, our, um, but actually let, let's, hold, let's hold off on that. Cause I want to oh, ask sure. you that in a second, but I want to just get a little bit yeah. more on California. So is there anything else we should know about California in terms of what's been happening and then what, what, what we can expect going forward? Well, I, I honestly think that the CPUC, the utilities commission is, is expecting, um, blackouts as part of their, their roadmap. They're um, in, in their in that ruling that I read through. They call it their least regrets strategy, meaning that they're they're they know that there will be regrets, and they say that uh, uh, blackouts cause regrets, and uh, so they're they're pursuing a least regrets strategy. But that was I think it was 2019 that happened. The next year they spent 800 million dollars subsidizing home generators. So I, I think that they can see this coming, and and they've been they're being what kind of by, what kind of home generators just diesel probably <laughs> that's that's what they are now so the, the irony just goes off the charts i mean you don't have to look at this stuff for very long to see the irony laying everywhere um so I, I think that that's the future for california i'm sad to say that and and the reliance on um uh, imported power from other states is just going to get harder and harder now now the the I, I you can see it coming in the news already the next heat wave They'll simply blame it on climate change and say, "Well, that means we have to get off uh, hydrocarbons even faster." And and I don't know how to dent that that faulty logic. Uh, I I think cold hard reality is going to have to do it, and I, it makes me very sad to say, but I think there's going to be a lot of suffering either from from power blackouts, either due to extreme cold or extreme heat. And and they're not it's not record breaking heat or cold. Um, the Texas cold spell did not break any cold records. All of Texas's cold weather records were set mainly before 1950. Record snowfall, record temperature, all of those things. So it's, extreme weather happens. It always has and it will. And, and, and I feel bad for Californians for what's coming. Well, also just this idea that this happened with the wildfires as well. Just this idea, okay, we're saying that that climate change is the issue. So fossil fuel use is causing this as a side effect. Like, but if you know how it works, the CO2 stays in the atmosphere for a long time. So even if you stop using fossil fuels tomorrow, you still have a high con higher concentration of CO2 there. So this is not a solution. You can't say like, oh, there's a, pro a big part of this is something I have zero immediate control over. So all I'm going to do is focus on changing that in 50 years. And I'm just going to let us all have blackouts now until that miracle happens. Like in what other context would that be considered a responsible response? I, I don't, I don't know. And, and that's part of the, you're right. It's not responsible. And, and we can get to China in a minute when you're ready to talk about it, but that's the, the elephant in the room. But, but the, the, perspectives of the people that claim to be safeguarding the environment. One of the biggest problems in California with wildfires has been um, uh, power lines hitting trees. And, and so that's why you get segments of the, the power grid that are shut in when there's high winds. But, and I've, I've seen on PG&E's site, and there's been news stories about protests 
that happen when crews show up to cut down the trees that are underneath the power lines. So uh, it's, it's people that are, that are from an environmental perspective, they want to protect trees. And I love trees, bless every forest, but, but there, there's, you have to have maintenance of the, of the grid or you're going to pay for it. So, so these, Groups keep coming at it from from all of these angles, which they claim to be uh, righteous about. And but the 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 second order effects that no one understands them or thinks about them. And when they happen, they just point to climate change. It's too cold. It's climate change. It's raining too much. It's climate change. Too dry. It's climate change. So it it it's it's they they've structured their argument well to sway the the public that doesn't care about energy and to sway weak politicians. Yeah, it's really there's a big element of what I call wilderness worship there that you see with the climate and ge- the climate arguments in general than the, than the forests because the forests really are worshipped as in like an unimpacted forest is this glorious thing versus you know <laughs> the natives hundreds of years ago knew full well that wasn't true. Like well, you need to do controlled burns of this. With, with like the, this is yeah. a menace if not managed properly. Yeah, it wasn't very long ago. I'm not sure if we still do it in Canada, but within the past decade, we did do controlled burns because it's it's critical. You you have to there has to be some sort of natural maintenance of, of these things. And 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 the more the more you work to suppress the the fires, the the bigger the problem can get. Um, and, and then the 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 encroachment of of people just moving out into these areas too. That if you if you build in a tinder dry forest that's full of uh, material that's highly combustible you can't be complaining in the news because your place gets burned down in a forest fire so it's tragic when it happens but you don't build a house on a floodplain and you don't build it where there's forest fire damage unless you take extreme precautions with constructing it so now i mean we have this perspective that we are you know in the u.s and this is happening significantly in canada well actually let's talk about canada for a second so that's where you live and so you know Mm -hmm. i'm most concerned directly with the U.S. and then even more within that in California, where I've lived for the last right. 15 plus years. What has Canada's experience been in terms of sacrificing the well-being of Canadians to these, you know, climate change gods? Oh, and it, what can we not... learn from your experience? <laughs> I, w- I wish we could. I, w- I wish there were people that would learn. We, we've had we've had a couple of uh, microcosms. Well, first of all, we have a leader that I I quite believe he's very charismatic but i think he's interested in united nations glory more so than actually leading the country so uh, so i think that he follows their dictates but if you if you step back so the u.s is 10 times bigger than canada and uh, and then if you if, if i could just in take population back, yeah population about uh, 10 years ago canada's largest province ontario underwent their own green revolution they elected a government which decided that they were going to uh, start getting off fossil fuels they were going to go all renewable. They had huge subsidies for wind and, and whatnot. It, it was a disaster. The, um, the, everyone's power bills went through the roof and, and people didn't really pay too much attention while it was happening because they thought, hey, well, I'd rather get my power from the wind. And then their power bill goes from $100 a month to $700 a month. And who does that strike most? The, the lower income people. They're the ones who get clobbered by these initiatives. So, so that, that government that implemented that, they got kicked so far out of power, they were totally decimated. They went from a majority government down to like two seats out of, I don't know, a couple hundred. And that's what happens, the overreaction. So, but, but Canada didn't really learn. Some of those people that were the architects of that went into our federal government and then their, 
they're putting the same policies in and it's it's terrible we have a, a carbon tax here that which is meant to discourage consumption which which can work in theory like higher prices do but they 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 tax everything businesses uh, that use energy which is every all of them um will have now have to pay much higher costs and rising for their fuel and then the government takes that money and they redistribute it to the citizens to buy votes so every citizen now gets a check every quarter for the, their carbon tax revenue which in theory is to offset the family's um, deprivation that they have from the cost of rising fuel but it's not it, it doesn't work that way it's not the same so and I fear the U.S. What, what do you mean it's not this? Path. What do you mean it's not the same? Well, if you if you get a, a tax rebate, if you're a, a, a lower income person struggling to get by, and and you have to drive to to your job like a lot of people do, and you need to heat your home in the winter, just getting a periodic check from the government isn't the same thing as, as having efficient energy everywhere. Because for for starters, that um, that rising cost of fuel, which a carbon tax does to all businesses, is, is just going to drive business away. There, there are industries that have been shut down here in the country. Um, be, uh, sometimes it happens just purely economically. When there's a price spike of natural gas in the, in the 2000s, there were some industries that just folded up because it, it didn't make economic sense to, to produce things here because the cost of input was too high. Well, now you're going to have the same thing with, with this carbon tax. So if, if a company relies on natural gas, for example, for as a major input uh, for their product, um, and that price gets driven up by a carbon tax, they'll just close their doors. So the government is, is a net, everyone's a net loser then because that wealth that was being created, those jobs that are being created, the government is taxing it out of existence. And, and the carbon tax that they earned on that consumption in the interim period, they hand it over as checks to citizens. So, so how, how is that good for anybody? If, if you, it's, it's this wealth equalization thing that never works. If you took wealth, if you took all of the uh, wealthy people in the world and you took all of their money and you divided it equally amongst every citizen, in two months, you'd have rich people and poor people again. That's how humanity works. So this notion that you can equalize your way to a, a healthy society, it's just flawed, but people will keep trying it. So, so let's, so there's the Ontario debacle, but what about the there's also just the broader anti-fossil fuel movement, how oh, that's affected huge. Alberta. Yeah, yeah. So talk a little bit about that, including the infrastructure part of it. Well, and the infrastructure, right. And that's what's interesting. Um, so if you call morbid things interesting, but it's coming your way too. For a long time, we've had challenges building pipelines here and they can uh, get shut down remarkably easy. And you're, you're starting to see that in the United States now too. There is a, I think it's called the Atlantic Coast Pipeline a multi-billion dollar pipeline, which is to be built from the Marcellus region mm -hmm. to haul gas down south. Um, the the um, owners of the pipeline had approval to build it. They had a Supreme Court approved ruling that says you you can build this pipeline. And uh, the company walked away from it because they, had, they just said, I think it was like a billion dollars or more of invested in this project. And they just said, it's just going to be too tough going forward the 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 uh, ace up the sleeve of of activist groups you, you can spend a billion dollars to get a project off the ground and they can derail it with ten thousand dollars worth of uh, protests and media coverage and they can they can delay it for a year and then another year and you lose a construction season and then you lose another one and then the the cost balloons of these projects from you can have a five billion dollar project which winds up costing nine billion and then it has a poor return on, on investment. 
and, and they they know this. They all they just want to slow everything down. So you'll see lawsuits that come up to slow it down by a season. The Mountain Valley Pipeline in West Virginia is facing the same thing. Endless little delays. There's protests where there's a stream crossing or something, and it's just death by a thousand cuts. And, and that it's it it's not just uh, the oil and gas infrastructure. That's what's so interesting is that this is going to strike all sorts of infrastructure spending. There's a major uh, trans power transmission line that uh, uh, some entities are trying to build out east uh, from Quebec to bring hydroelectric power, green hydroelectric power. If you kick all of the indigenous people off first and flood their land, then it's green. That's another story. And so they want to build a pipeline to haul or to carry power from Quebec into the Northeast United States. And that power line is being uh, opposed by environmental or activist groups there and renewables groups. So that may not even get built. So um, at the end of the day, all of this infrastructure, which uh, governments uh, like the Biden administration and whoever plans to build, I just I, then I turn into a Missourian and it's just show me. I'll believe it when I see it. It's yeah. Yeah, it's so I mean, it's just why this anti-impact. Another reason why this anti-impact movement is so bad, because you need to impact nature to survive and to flourish. And they just have this moral license to just stop anything anywhere. It is. And it's it, the, the the scale of what they're demanding is just is just unfathomable. There's the International Energy Agency put out a couple of reports which made the news. One which really made the news last week, they said, uh, if we want to meet uh, net zero global carbon emissions targets, we can't have any more fossil fuel investment after 2021. Period. It's done, um, which is absurd in itself, uh, as as India and China will tell you, or and most of the countries in the world. Uh, and but more interestingly, they put out a report two weeks before that, and they said, "Does anyone really know what mineral requirements are going to be for this renewable revolution?" And they they did a good job of cataloging it. Their in their estimate, uh, global mineral production will have to increase four times by 2040 to meet the demand of. Um, of the renewable revolution. Where, who, who's going to build all these mines and where are they going to be built? How are you going to build them without the hydrocarbons they said we can't burn anymore? It's just an impossibility. Imagine building new mines all over the United States to increase lithium and uh, all these rare earth minerals where you have to rip mountains apart. It's just, it's just, it's comical almost to think of what they're mapping out as a necessity. It's it's mind-boggling. Well, and the, and the, this goes to the issue of the, the like communist planning element of it. Because one thing I found striking, and Mark Mills had a really good article in the Wall Street Journal about this, is just that these planners just have not thought this through at all. They're just assuming, oh yeah, they'll be there. And what you know, one one mistake that dumb people make is that they just like they look at a situation right now at a small scale. And then they assume, oh, it'll be the same or better at a large scale. So you're like, okay, here's what lithium costs today. So I'm going to invent something that involves a hundred times more of it. And then it's going to be just as cheap or cheaper. Now that can happen with certain things, but also the reverse right. can happen. I mean, no one would think if you did that with oil, no one would think, oh, I have a plan that's going to involve using twice as much oil for 10 years. <laughs> Nobody's going to think, oh, that's going to work. They're going to be like, no, even if you could do that, that scale is going to be so disruptive and so expensive in the meantime. Yet everyone has all these plans that require all of this scaling that they haven't thought through and that there literally are not the resources being deployed 
to do. Like there's just not the mining in place and nobody has a plan for it. It's just somebody made it up and they're like, oh yeah, well, of course the minerals will like, I'm just going to look at today's mineral prices and I'm just going to assume that there's 10 times more of them and then they'll be there when I need them. Right. And, and it's, it's, you're right. It's just nobody thinks through the chains of these things. And that's what I wrote my book about was just to try and put in layman's terms that just, just to try and help people understand the actual scale of what they're, what they're demanding out of the system. And, and, and you're right. The, the, the flaw in the logic is they start with this, this normative end goal. We, we, we have to be carbon neutral by 2050 or whatever, pick your number. Uh, we have to limit the degrees of temperature increase and then they say, well, we'll just work backwards from there. But that's not how it works. It's not that's nothing works that way. It's like um, I, I can obesity is a huge problem around the world and growing. And it's uh, and I can get rid of it free in three months by I'll, I'll say, OK, there'll be no more obesity in three months. And my plan involves getting everyone to eat salads from not from here on. Like it's, it's it's just it's laughable. But but that's what they call a roadmap. And they say, well, it could work. My plan could work. Sure. If I can force everyone in the world to eat salads, we'll, we'll get rid of obesity. But, but it's absurd. And, and, but nobody's calling out the absurdity of these energy uh, transition scenarios. Yeah, although the salads, the disanalogy there's the So you can force people to do less of something that you know how to do. Uh, you can't force people to be way more productive than they are. Like, and that's what they're trying to do. They're, they're, they're saying, oh, if we, and they've even, you even see some admissions like, yeah, some of the stuff needed to get there involves like technologies that don't exist or aren't commercial <laughs> like, by 2050. That's, yeah. the, that's the view. That well, that's like, ha- half of their roadmap is, is consists of technology that doesn't yet exist. And it's, <laughs> I mean, like, the, a, you know, you look at like, Jake, I don't know if you study this guy, Jacobson from Stanford, he's kind of oh, like the perfect crank for this kind of thing and he's got like hydrogen planes in there oh yeah i read his roadmap and it's like uh it's just you just boggles your mind i think by 2030 or 2040 i'll even give him that um in one of his roadmap scenarios like it said that all all air travel under 1500 kilometers which is like i don't know a thousand miles will be done by electric plane by that time frame it's like there's (laughs) <laughs> there's no such thing is there's it doesn't even exist and it's not even on anybody's radar to develop a, an electric plane that can carry that kind of battery load never mind all of the people around it, it's just absurdity but he's he's a phd and he gets it, the, this stuff gets into the news i think in like environmental science though <laughs> it, <laughs> but he said don't nobody even i mean people care about credentials when it reinforces their uh, their narrative. I think it is notable with a lot of these roadmaps, none of the people are even economists. Not, not that economists are free from this kind of thing, but I, I find the most irrational stuff are kind of like environmental studies expert yeah. types. Because yeah. they know, and to your point, they have they have this goal that they know morally is right of, oh, let's be carbon neutral by 2050. And it's like, oh, like give me some spreadsheets and some market figures and I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you the basic roadmap. And sure, I don't know all the details, but you guys can, it'll work out somehow. Oh yeah. And the, the, um, the motherhood statements they put into these things, it's like there, you'll almost always find some catchphrase. Like I was reading the IEA report and they say, well, to, to get, to get here will require massive collaboration between industry and governments. It's like, well, what does that mean? And the, there, that's not concrete in any way. And one of the absurdities in this uh, report about how much minerals will be required, it said, 
Um, they said the, the only way we're going to get here is if we have collaboration between industry and government to keep uh, minerals prices down. Well, what kind, <laughs> what kind of mining <laughs> industry is going to collaborate with government to keep prices down when that's the incentive to go develop a new mine? Like, it's just, it's, I, I don't know. I, I, you, you read the fine print of these. They put out an article like this and it gets certain headlines because they say what they know the media wants to hear. But if you read through it, just like the California, the Public Utilities Commission uh, ruling on how much power they're going to grant or allow California to implement that can't be fossil fuels. But you, you read it and it's just like, this can't be real, but it is real and it's happening. So, so we've got in California and Canada, and of course, the rest of the US increasingly, we've got this just total sacrifice of our ability to produce energy to you know the god of carbon neutral or net zero. Let's talk about, and you know, this, I mean, this would be bad. I mean, this would be horrible if it was just everyone was partaking in mass suicide. Um, but part of what's interesting about this god of carbon neutral is it's being daily spited and cursed by uh, China. So I'd love you to talk about that, like what they're actually doing. Uh, well, there's despite, a, there's... despite this idea, because of course, carbon neutral is a global goal. So yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. If you're if you're serious about uh, reducing carbon in the atmosphere, you have to view it globally. You can't just uh, kill off Western society. And there's an interesting axis. I'll call them the axis of energy. There's Russia, China, and India. And um, here's some interesting stats on on those three entities. Uh, Russia is uh, undergoing a 230 billion dollar Arctic oil development program. Um, China is developing a, a, an estimated 100,000, um, I think it's miles of new oil and gas pipeline in their in their five year planning um, program, uh, and India is spending 140 billion dollars on oil and gas infrastructure. That this is roadmap that they're going to spend. And uh, India's energy minister, and I'll I'll just refer to him instead of China because he was very much more open. Um, he said recently in a climate change conference in preparation for the COP26 climate change thing that's happening this fall. He, he had all of these uh, energy environment ministers and he said, uh, climate neutrality by 2060 is pie in the sky. I'm sorry to say it, but it's pie in the sky. And he said, if you think we have 800 million people in India with, that don't have access to uh, electricity or well, no, that water. was actually That was globally, actually. That, that was some- Oh, globally? Okay, 800 sorry. million was the, okay. the, the clean electricity globally. Yeah. Um, and I, I know that there's 300 million people in India that don't have access to clean water. And so his co comment was, if you think we're, we're just going to uh, go carbon neutral and forego all that development, it's not going to happen. And I think China is the same. And, and it's not that these countries are anti-renewable either. They're, they're building all the renewable they can, but they're also building all the oil and gas infrastructure they can. And they're building coal-fired power plants because they need it. They have billions of mouths to feed every day. China and India, between the two of them, have nearly three billion people, and they 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 want to live like we do, and and no one can blame them. So how how are they going to get there? And and they're going to do what they have to do to to get by and to get ahead. And and whatever we do here in the West, some people think we're just setting an example and they'll follow our example, but um, I, I don't think that's reality. Not when you have that many mouths to feed. If you take the United States and Canada, we have fewer than four hundred million people. If you throw in Western Europe, that's another couple hundred million people that we're, we're all of those. All of the West is 
is is less than half of India's population or like a third of China's almost. So we have this view that that we're going to save the world by reducing carbon. And they're saying, sorry, buddy, we got to eat. <laughs> so, Yeah. And you look, I mean, so so they're an axis in a certain way. But I mean, I put I would put India in a totally different moral category than I would China and Russia. I do, too. A- absolutely. There's quite a distinction there. Yeah. China and Russia have a lot more in common in terms of they, they do what they want and they but and they say what they want to India is more more like I said I, I like the guy's quote because he was open and honest I, I, I don't think China's being honest with the world about their their climate or their yeah um, you think yeah we're um, <laughs> trying to be polite but but it's it's uh you know there's not not called for well there's an issue. I would say there's China's dishonesty. And then I would say 10x that is America's dishonesty about China's dishonesty. So I, I've had some, I've featured some quotes from people like, so you take some of the leaders in our economy. So Elon Musk, you know, has praised China, like, oh, I'm super impressed with what China's doing about climate change. Uh, Larry Fink, the head of BlackRock, who's probably the most powerful person in the financial world right now and strikes right. Terror in the heart of basically all oil CEOs every time he puts out his letter. And I looked at his letter this year and he literally talks, he talks about China. And the only thing he says is like, oh, this shows great progress because China's made a historic commitment to climate neutrality by 2060. And I'm like, wait a second, do you look at the data of what they're doing? Like they're building three Texas worth, or they're, they're at least having the pipeline, three Texas worth of coal plants, like coal plants that could just power three Texas on their own. That's new stuff, you know, record, yeah. um, you know, five-year high, I think, of coal production, record oil imports. And this is in 2020, mind you, pandemic year. And yet we are just committed to be totally blind to the fact of increasing fossil fuel use. The fact that a lot of that is our increasing fossil fuel use because we use China to produce stuff for us. It's not just oh, like yeah. producing stuff for Chinese. It's mostly they're producing stuff for other people. And then we ignore also the underlying realities why that's the case. Why are they using fossil fuels? because it's the most cost-effective thing for them to use to accomplish their goals. And as long as that's true, people are going to use fossil fuels, yet there is this total denial of what's happening around the world and why. Yep, that's right. And, and the we, we've gotten so, it's part of this, this system or systemic problem, or it's not a problem, it is what it is, that we've, we keep all these billions of people alive with the system that works. And agriculture is another good example. You, you can't feed billions of people without hydrocarbons you just can't there's no such thing as a battery powered tractor that, that's going to do what a, a, a diesel powered tractor can do and there's it, it's uh it, that's important when you have that many people that many mouths to feed and and um china we have this interesting viewpoint like you say where china makes everything for everyone else and i don't know if that gets them some slack cut or not but it, it certainly uh gives them an opportunity to to play games with these sort of things and they do that very well. If you think about just China, I mean, it's it, this is an oversimplification, but if you think of it like, if you think of just the whole world and it's and you just think of it as one, you know, it's just one group of, it's humanity. And you think like, okay, effectively, like we have a bunch of factories producing stuff in this part of the world, which we call Asia, and we power those factories mostly by coal. So we're using coal and yet people are just, just distorting everything. It's like, oh no, we don't use coal. They're like, oh yeah, China's, you see these things, oh, China has this disturbing increase in coal. If only China could be like the rest of us and cutting down on coal, but it's like, no, we are China. We're using China 
to, to the reason why all the coal is there is because we're getting all the stuff produced there. Right. And, right. It, it's, it's just offshoring of it. And that's one thing that drives us crazy. Some of us in the resource sector in Canada here too, is that we're, we, we, um, our own federal government even looks down on the resource sector and they say like Canada is one of the highest per capita emitters of, um, of, of carbon dioxide or whatever emissions. Um, and that's certainly true when you rank it that way, but that's because uh, some countries consume a lot more than others. Like if you, if you have a big, it's, I call it the world's natural resource pantry. If everybody, if, if you supply half the world's aluminum, there's a cost to that. And if you, if you mine something and export it, there's, there's a, somebody else benefits from that. And, and then, yeah, China assembles everything. It goes to them and they assemble it and sell it back to us. It's, it's, it, this, if the people are serious about solving this issue, and I don't even know if they are, I think it's a political movement, but if they were serious about it, the only way to tackle it is on a global basis. So what are your, so you've, you've written this book, The End of Fossil Fuel Insanity, which I haven't read yet, but which, oh, I just started. Uh, okay. I haven't read yet. So Good man. It's, it's looking promising from the very beginning. So I will read it. And I'll, uh, I think many people will now read it, uh, having listened to this. What are your, and you're writing at you know, publicenergynumber1.com and I think it's boereport.com. BOE so yeah. what are your plans going forward on this issue? Uh, it's getting more challenging. I think that, um, what, well, one thing that I'm happy about and maybe like you too, is that every every week that goes by, I see an, ex, I see an expanded audience of people that are saying, wait a minute, this stuff doesn't really add up. Uh, like we maybe we've been sold a bill of goods and the, um, I, I really liked your testimony before Congress last week. You, you, you were, uh, your, you, you got your messages across and you, you totally ignored the guy that was attacking you. And, and I think that's, um, hydrocarbons have maybe a uh, hole to dig out of because of something that happened 50 years ago around the world. And, but I think we just have to keep getting the story out that, uh, about the reality of the situation sooner or later, reality will dawn on people. And my hope is that it happens before there's too many dead bodies laying around, because if, if we if we keep cutting the world's fuel supply off at the knees, it's going, going to happen. There's going to be a catastrophe somewhere. So uh, I, I just plan to just keep explaining to the world that the, the some of these things which are too boring to talk about, like your heating system and your cooling system and the fuel in your vehicle, they're critically important. And you don't listen to false prophets that, that tell you something will happen because they think it has to happen. That's not how the world works. So I, I just try and keep at it, just try and keep making stories that are relatable for people, putting it in a context that they can understand and actually care about. Um, There's studies that have been done in Canada and the US. It's quite interesting. They ask people uh, if they're um, uh, parallel studies, uh, are you concerned about climate change? And a lot of people will say, oh yeah, I'm extremely concerned. You'll get like 75% of people will say that. And then they'll say, and how much are you willing to spend to do anything about it? And uh, the results in Canada and the US are both, both the same. There's something like more than half of the people wouldn't spend $100 a year and 90% of people wouldn't spend $500 a year. So, so there's, there's, uh, there's a lot they of- They don't realize that they're already spending far more than that. That's right. And people don't realize what's happening. So I, I think that like what happened in Ontario here, when people actually get a bill and it says, Oh, here, but here's your bill for the all of the renewable energy in, in direct form. Uh, then they just hit the roof. And California's are they're, they're, your your power prices are huge, and they're going to get much bigger. And you're going to have blackouts. 
And at some point, they can't hide behind these crazy arguments. At some point, you, they, someone, even these people that are uh, responsible for a lot of this are going to have to stand up and say, yeah, this just doesn't work. Reality will dictate that. Whether I say it or not, or anybody else says it or not, reality will have the last word. One final thought about that, and this is one reason I like your work and, and hopefully we can collaborate some more in the future, is that I think it's to your point about we don't want, like some people think, oh yeah, if we just have some epic crisis, then it'll all be solved. Like, first of all, you don't want a crisis. I mean, you're trying to avoid, you're trying to improve life. Absolutely. So, you know, but I think one of the key, but it, it is true that you want to, you want to be the person, if there's a crisis, who was warning about it and explaining it all the time, because you see then then there's a better chance that people will have, that cre credible people will emerge with more authority. And also there will be, a, have been put a, an explanatory framework in place saying, hey, this is gonna happen and then it happened. And then people believe that. But I think one of the keys to doing it is to show the disaster, like the disasters that are happening when they're happening. So you talk about like Ontario is a good example. So really documenting, hey, here's what happened in Ontario. This is not a new idea. It's already happened. Here's what happened to this company. Here's what, and the more kinds of really good stories we can have and what I call power facts about the realities of the failures around the world. If people get that, oh wait, unreliable energy is failing around the world, then they'll see the current state as a crisis. Like you wanna make as much as possible the current, and it is a crisis for, for all the people that it's victimizing. So I think that's the key is not waiting for this like epic, everything collapses, right. but Absolutely. rather telling there are a million that's stories today. Sure. And one, yeah. one, one thing that is, you know, that's unusual and I like in your work is that there's not enough just documenting what's happening today there's, it's, it's often too vague. And I think the more we can tell the concrete stories of all the damage that's being done today, as well as all the good that's being done today from different right. things, then people will see the world differently. And then they'll be motivated to act based on today's world. And that means avoiding the worst world of tomorrow. I, I think so. And if I can leave you with one example here, which is just, it's, it's just so crystal clear. It's, it's, it's bone chilling, but in January of 2019, uh, Rhode Island ran short of natural gas. Uh, they're, they're, they won't allow any new pipelines to be built to bring new gas into the state, into Northeast. But, um, and so there's a cold snap in January of 2019. The, um, the, the, and because there wasn't enough natural gas to supply all the demand, their consumption went up, of course, as it does in cold weather. Uh, the utility said, we have to shut in a bunch of customers because you can't depressurize a natural gas system too much. It has to maintain a certain operating pressure. And so the, the uh, governor declared a state of emergency and said 7,000 customers will be shut in. This is an emergency. People will die tonight if you do not accept them into your homes. They called on churches. They called on people. They said, call everyone you know. And if you have space in your home, bring people in because they could die tonight. And this is real. This and But it never made the news. It made the local news. But the, the, um, the declaration of the state of the emergency is right there on their website. You can find it but the news would not pick it up. So it's, it's, it's critical for people like yourself and myself to, to bring these things to light. And, and that's not, that's not um, advocacy. That's not lobbying. That's reality. This is what happens. And, and people need to know the risk that they're at if they allow these policies to continue. If you want to blockade a natural gas pipeline, here's what the consequences could be. So it's very that's clear and it's, it's not biased. It's real. It, that's what happened. So, yeah, and I didn't even know that 
that specific story. So it just goes to show how valuable it is. Yeah. Exactly. It just doesn't make the news. And that's why these conversations are important. And there's, there's a lot more like that of near misses. Quebec almost ran out of propane to, for their hospitals uh, last winter because there were railway blockades by people who were against uh, fossil fuels. And, and the, they're, they were getting nervous saying, we don't have enough propane for it's the middle of winter. We need to keep hospitals warm. But the, the emergency supplies were diverted and, it, and then it just disappeared from the news. So, yeah. yeah, well, I have I have a project I'll tell you about offline. That's we're going to tell these stories a lot better. So it's great. Great to have you on the show. Thanks for all your work. And where can people oh, find welcome. out more about you? Uh, sure. They can read uh, my weekly column at the BOE report dot com. And then my own site is public energy number one, which I'm more active on the BOE report. And then they can find my book on uh, Amazon or Barnes and Noble, the end of fossil fuel insanity. Awesome, Terry. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Alex. Thanks again to Terry Edom for joining me. Definitely check out his work at boereport.com. He has a lot of great facts and figures in his columns. Let's see what else. Um, if you haven't checked it out already, make sure to check out my congressional testimony. You can see it at youtube.com slash improve the planet. Also, I did one of my favorite interviews uh, that I've ever done, maybe my favorite, on a show called Modern Wisdom. That's a fairly popular podcast based in the UK. And you, so you can check it out at the Modern Wisdom podcast, or you can go to YouTube and search Modern Wisdom Alex Epstein. I thought he asked really good questions and you'll see some of the latest ways of explaining things that are based on what I've been doing in Fossil Future. Uh, let's see what else. Well, as usual, if you have any questions, comments, love mail or hate mail, you can email me at alex at alexepstein.com. If you want to support our work at the Center for Industrial Progress, specifically to help us do more R&D and more uh, promotion of our ideas, you can become an accelerator. Go to industrialprogress.com slash accelerate. For the latest talking points on energy, follow me on Twitter, twitter.com slash Alex Epstein, or go to energytalkingpoints.com. Also, I rarely mention this, but I probably should a lot more. Uh, you can follow the YouTube page at youtube.com slash improve the planet, uh, you know, like this video, share this video or audio, and then also subscribe to the podcast or leave a review. It's power hour and on any platform, but I think Apple podcasts and Spotify are probably the most important ones. So if you, uh, maybe you can leave a review in both places. I think if, if more of that happens, more people will get this message It's definitely needed right now. All right. I will be back next time with another great guest. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.